I do not regard advertising as entertainment or an art form, but as a medium of information. When I write an advertisement, I don't want you to tell me that you find it creative. I want you to find it so interesting that you buy the product. In my Confessions of an Advertising Man, published in 1963, I told the story of how Ogilvy and Mather came into existence and set forth the principles on which our early success had been based. Our principles seemed to work. But I am now so old that a French magazine lists me as the only survivor among a group of men who contributed to the Industrial Revolution, alongside Adam Smith, Edison, Karl Marx, Rockefeller, Ford, and Keynes. Does old age disqualify me from writing about advertising in today's world? Or could it be that that perspective helps a man to separate the internal verities of advertising from its passing fads? Most of the advertising techniques which worked when I wrote Confessions of an Advertising Man still work today. Consumers still buy products whose advertising promises them value for money, beauty, nutrition, relief from suffering, social status, and so on, all over the world. In saying this, I run the risk of being denounced by the idiots who hold that any advertising technique which had been in use for more than two years is ipso facto obsolete. Okay, so that is from the introduction of the book that I read this week and the one I'm going to be talking to you about today, which is Ogilvy on Advertising by David Ogilvy. All right, so let's jump into the book. This is a glimpse of his personality, and he explicitly tells us who this book is for. He focuses on advertising, like he just said. Like, I don't look at it as an art form. I'm not trying to be creative for creative states. I'm trying to convey information so you buy a product, right? And that's why my agency will grow because I'm effective at doing this for my clients. And as their business grows, they spend more money with me. And, and therefore, um, that rising tide lifts my boat. And then he talks about, he's like, I don't care about, like, uh, you know, what campaigns find favorite cocktail parties in New York and San Francisco. So he says, I comfort myself with the reflection that I have sold more merchandise than all of them put together, meaning the people that just win awards. I am sometimes attacked for imposing rules. Nothing could be further from the truth. I hate rules. He's very much a misfit. Um, all I do is report on how consumers react to different stimuli. This is not a book for readers who think they already know all there is to know about advertising. It is for young hopefuls and veterans who are still in search of ways to improve their batting average at the cash register. I write only about aspects of advertising I know from my own experience. So he's right off the rip. He's telling us, listen, I don't, I'm not here to win wars. I'm not here to make my ads make, uh, be even the most beautiful like visual representations. I'm here to serve my clients and his entire business. We've been talking about uh, Howard, Howard Stern. We've been talking about Henry Ford lately. And his whole theme, when you read the two books are, I've read, um, the two ones that he, he's written at least, and I, they're in the other books written about him, is focus on service, 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 service. His, uh, there's no, in Henry Ford's opinion, there's no opinion, or there's no point in having a business that does not focus on service, because that's literally why you exist. And in um, David Ogilvy's case, he feels the very same way. I'm here to service my clients. What they want me to do is help them sell more of their product. And so that's the the prism and through which i'm going to look at advertising i'm only going to look at advertising on based on its effectiveness um, which i find refreshing um so here's a little bit about brevity performance and lies i ask you to forgive me for oversimplifying some complicated subjects and for the dogmatism of my style and so what's that dogmatism he says it's the dogmatism of brevity we are both in a hurry i love this guy 
The first thing I have to say is that you may not realize the magnitude of difference between one advertisement and another. And um, just like he studied consumer behavior, he studied uh, the, the industry. Like he did a lot of professional research. Um, in his industry, he le- he sought out and uh, learned from people that came before him. In fact, at the end of the book, I'm going to share with you where he goes over the six people that had been in the business before him. Some of which he wind up he winds up knowing and they wind up mentoring him. Um, so in this case, he's quoting another one of uh, what he feels is one of the best direct response copywriters, and this guy named John Caples. And this is John speaking, and he says, "I have seen one advertisement actually sell not twice as much." Not three times as much, but 19 times as much as another. Both advertisements occupied the same space. Both were run in the same publication. Both had photographic illustrations. Both had carefully written copy. The difference was the one used the right appeal and the other one used the wrong appeal. And so he he talks about like, well, I guess I'll get into that, but you... Too many people, um, too many companies, he was saying, and too many advertising agencies, they advertise the product. Customers don't care about your product. They care about what change your product makes to them. So that's what they're talking about with the right appeal. This is very similar to when we uh, took, I keep saying we, there's no we. When I covered um, the the two books by Charlie Munger, where he kept drilling in about steady incentives, steady incentives, steady incentives. Even when he was in his 80s, Munger's like, listen, I th- think I've been in the top 5% of my age cohort my whole life understanding how human behavior is shaped by incentives and every year that passes even up until this point where i'm later in my life i still realize i have a lot more to learn and that the impact the incentives actually have a larger impact than i even thought before so he says everyone involved has a venture vested interest in prolonging the myth that all advertising increases sales to some degree it doesn't um, this is another example. So he, he has these just little paragraphs or little sections within chapters that have these um, these headlines that I would say is basically him giving us direct advice. And this is uh, something that uh, I've talked about a lot, the importance of professional research. And he calls it doing your homework. She says, you don't stand a tinker's chance of producing successful advertising unless you start by doing your homework. And again, he's talking about uh, people that want to work in the advertising business. This applies to all whatever craft that you're doing. She says, I have always found this extremely tedious, but there is no substitute for it. First, study the product you're going to advertise. The more you know about it, the more likely you are to come up with a big idea for selling it. This is actually uh, the idea that books are the original links. Uh, I found this paragraph particularly interesting because it ties into the book that I did last week, which is on Henry Royce, one of the founders of Rolls Royce. So turns out Ogilvy is connected to that because he winds up doing the his his um, his agency winds up doing the advertising for Rolls Royce for quite a long time. So he says, when I got the Rolls Royce account, I spent three weeks reading about the car and came across a statement that at 60 miles an hour, the loudest noise comes from the electric clock. This became the headline, and it was followed by 607 words of factual copy. And he actually shows that beautiful um, advertisement that he has that he's talking about on the the page next to us. Um, And remember the 607 words, uh, a lot of people, well, he's going to talk a lot about the fact that it's a myth. That when you're writing an advertisement or you're you're communicating with uh, potential customers, longer is almost always better. And he's, he's got some data on that. So just remember the fact that he wrote a 607-word um, advertisement <laughs> uh, in a magazine. Uh, okay, or it could be a newspaper. I'm not actually sure where it was published. All right, later when I got the Mercedes account, I sent a team to the, to the headquarters in Stuttgart. 
Um, and they spent three weeks taping interviews with engineers. From this came a campaign of long, factual advertisements, which increased Mercedes sales in the United States from 10,000 cars a year to 40,000 cars a year. Okay, so that's just an example of some of the results of his, his excessive, um, and I mean that in the best way possible, professional research. Uh, he talks about consumer research and positioning a lot in this book. Here's some examples. Now, come, now comes research among consumers. Find out how they think about your kind of product, what language they use when they discuss the subject, what attributes are important to them, and what promises, or excuse me, and what promise would be most likely, and what promise would be most likely to make them buy your brand. So that whole idea that an ad or anything, the, the first thing that customers should know about your product, what you're trying to sell them, is what do you promise that it's going to do for them? A lot of things, a lot of ads that he uses examples of is like, we're the best. Uh, look how great we are. Consumers don't care about that. Everybody is in, in, in some degree selfish. So they care about them. So don't talk about yourself. Talk about them. And he says the positioning. Now consider how you want to position your product. This curious verb is in great favor among marketing experts, but no two of them agree what it means. My own, defini my own definition is what the product does and who is it for. Um, so he talks about the importance of brand image. And he, this is uh, some of the tests he does on consumer behavior. Um, and he's doing, there is some kind of liquor. I don't know what kind. Um, it's called Old Crow. Okay, so I guess that's not important. Just it's alcohol that he's, he's advertising. So he says, give people a taste of Old Crow and tell them it's Old Crow. Then give them another taste of Old Crow, but tell them it's Jack Daniels. So they're drinking the exact same thing. You're just lying to them, right? And he's doing this in like a, a consumer research study. Ask them which they prefer. They'll think the two drinks are quite different. They are tasting images. That's such an interesting idea. So this is, again, tying into the importance of brand image. I have always been hypnotized by Jack Daniels. The label and the advertising convey an image of homespun honesty. And the high price makes me assume that Jack Daniels must be superior. This is another like hidden secret about human nature that um, people determine qual the quality of the shortcut to, for determining the quality of um, a product is by looking at the price. So you remember when we did that, when, um, when I did that book on um, the two founders of Banana Republic, Mel and Patricia, and I found it fascinating when they first started the first Banana Republic store, which is really interesting because it's a completely different brand than what exists today. Um, they would have, Patricia would set up the store and when an item wasn't selling, um, in fact, this is one of the reasons uh, the founder of Gap wind up buying the company. Um, most retail establishments at the time say, like, oh, this is this price or this, this item of clothing is selling. Here, 50% off. Now, now it uh, will sell. Patricia did the opposite. She raised the price and it wind up selling because the same scarf or same blouse or same shirt, same whatever that was $25 is viewed one way. Now it's $100 and suddenly it's, oh, it's a luxury item. Oh, this must be really nice. And again, the, the world is extremely complex. Humans, all of us, myself included, look for shortcuts to try to, to convey information rapidly. And price is one of those. Okay, so, oh, this is, uh, I love this quote. He says, have humility in the presence of a good idea. He says, when asked what the best asset a man could have, Albert Lasker, this is a huge influence on him, and we'll cover more about Albert later, the most astute of all advertising men, replied, humility in the presence of a good idea. It is horribly difficult to recognize a good idea. I shudder to think how many I have rejected. 
Research can't help you much because it cannot predict the cumulative value of an idea. And no idea is big unless it will work for 30 years. That's another, um, another idea of his that is kind of uh, contrarian in the advertising industry. At least it was at the time he wrote the book. Was that if you find an, an ad that works, don't change it. Um, in some cases, they've run the same ad for 30 years and it's still selling. And now he's got some explicit advice for us. Make the product the hero and make it different. So he says, whenever you can, make the product itself the hero of your advertising. If you think the product's too dull, I have news for you. There are no dull products, only dull writers. Every time I have written a bad campaign, it is, become, it is because the product did not interest me. Now, why wouldn't a product interest you? And, and keep in mind, ad agencies see tons of products. So he says, the problem which confronts agencies is that so many products are no different from their competitors. This is why I, kind of are, I guess I do believe in the, um, in the axiom that you don't have to be better. You just have to be different. And I like this idea, too. The idea of a positively good product. And this is, um, his, this is an, a quote from his partner, Joel. So he says, In the past, just about every advertiser has assumed that in order to sell his goods, he has to convince consumers that his product is superior to his comp competitors. That's why I was referencing earlier how you read a lot of ads like, we're the best in the world, or this is the Northeast's best car dealership, or this is you know, Europe's best coffee, whatever the case is. This may not be necessary. It may be sufficient to convince consumers that your product is positively good. If the consumer feels certain that your product is good and feels uncertain about your competitors, he will buy yours. Remember, that has nothing to do with the quality, right? If you and your competitors all make excellent products, don't try to imply that your product is better. Just say what's good about your product and do a clearer, more honest, more informative job of saying it. That, that word clear is really important. We'll talk about that later. Because uh, remember, he told you from the beginning, advertising is conveying information. Don't confuse your customer. If this theory is right, sales will swing to the marketer who does the best job of creating confidence that his product is positively good. And now this is Ogilvy with advice on down with committees. Most campaigns are too complicated. Uh, use the word products to, as well for, for campaigns. They reflect a long list of objectives and try to reconcile the divergent views of too many executives. By attempting to cover too many things, they achieve nothing. This is also why I prefer founder-led companies. Many commercials and many advertisements look like the minutes of a committee. In my experience, committees can criticize, but they cannot create. And then this is uh, his advice on this constant pursuit of knowledge. Um, and he, he comes to the conclusion that the good ones just know more. They just know more. Um, he says, it is the same with advertising agents. The good ones know more. I asked an indifferent copywriter what books he had read about advertising. He told me that he had not read any, that he preferred to rely on his own tuition or his own intuition. Excuse me. Suppose I asked your gallbladder has to be removed this evening. Will you choose a surgeon who has read some books on anatomy and knows where to find your gallbladder or a surgeon who relies on his intuition? Why should our clients be expected to bet millions of dollars on your intuition? This willful refusal to learn the rudiments of the craft is all too common. That's one of the most important sentences in the book. Let me read that again. This willful refusal to learn the rudiments of the craft 
is all too common. So this is lessons of direct response. He's a really big um, um, proponent of direct response advertising. And he feels like it's kind of, at least when he's writing in the 80s, it's kind of like the ugly stepchild because a lot of people just want to advertise their brand and make you aware of it. And he's like, well, the, the best people at advertising are actually people that, that know the effectiveness of their advertising. And at that time, it was only direct response. Um, so we're going to talk, talk a little bit about that here. He says, the advertising community has turned its back on such research. Agencies which pioneered the search for knowledge now excel in violating the principles their predecessors had discovered. So they're ignoring the past, all the lessons that, that the people that were doing that job before had discovered. And so now they're going to make the same mistakes over and over again if they didn't have to. If you choose to ignore these factors, good luck to you. A blind pig can some, sometimes find truffles, but it helps to know that they are found in oak forests. Direct response advertisers know to a dollar how much each advertisement sells. So watch the kind of advertising they do. That's smart. Really smart. Watch what they do, not what they say. You will notice important differences between their techniques and the techniques of general advertisers. And so he says, for example, uh, now this is where he's, he comes up with some of his ideas. Again, so he, he, does, he relies on professional research. He doesn't really pay attention to what people say. He watches what they do, right? Which is really smart for human because humans uh, tell we're much more truthful with our actions than we are with our words, okay? So now he's going to go and, and compa- contrast what direct advertisers do with what other people in advertising that don't do professional research recommend you do. See the difference there? This is, these are the people that actually are effective at what they're doing. Meanwhile, there's like this intelligentsia, if you want to say, or like these, these people are trying to win awards and not necessarily sell products, and this is what they tell you to do. So it says general advertisers use 30-second commercials, but the direct response fraternity has learned that it is more profitable to use two-minute commercials. And then this is David asking us, who do you suppose is more likely to be right? General advertisers broadcast their commercials in expense of prime time when the audience is at its peak. But direct response advertisers have learned that they make more sales late at night. Who do you suppose is more likely to be right? In their magazine advertisements, general, general advertisers use short copy. But the direct response people invariably use long copy. Who do you suppose is more likely to be right? This is such a really important point that he's making here. I'm convinced that if all advertisers were to follow the example of their direct response brethren, they would get more sales per dollar. Now, so this is what I meant by he's funny. Like, if you choose to ignore these factors, good luck to you. A blind pig can sometimes find truffles. Uh, so uh, this is something he learned from William Maynard, somebody that uh, was at a different agency. And this idea of uh, being, if you're a killer plus a poet, you will get rich. So he says, most good copywriters fall into two categories, poets and killers. Poets see an ad as an end, killers as a means to an end. If you are both killer and poet, you get rich. And now I guess the, the modern equivalent in the age of the internet, if you're a builder, if you can build things yourself and you can sell them yourself, you'll get rich. Um, I think that that quote is from um, the founder of AngelList, Naval Ravikant. Um, this is just good advice for life. Set yourself to becoming the best informed person in the agency on the account into which you are assigned. If, for example, it is in a gasoline account, read books on oil geology and the production of petroleum products. Read the trade journals in the field. Spend Saturday mornings in service stations talking to motorists. Visit your clients' refineries and research laboratories. At the end of your first year, you will know more about the oil business than your boss. And again, this is another example of professional research, something that Bill Gurley talks about, Danny Meyer talks about, a lot of people talk about. 
and how many people, I would just ask you this question. First, I think this is a great idea. Go as deep as, as you can, right? How many people, like if you assume that the advertising agency is a zero-sum game, right? Um, we're, we're lucky, I think, most of us to, we don't have to, you know, most of the, the world now, at least in, in like the internet um, world, is not zero-sum. But you could argue that the world that David inhabited was zero-sum. Either your agency gets this or they don't, right? That, that account's going somewhere. So it's highly competitive. How many people are that you're competing with are actually going to do these things that he's talking about? Like, that's tiny, probably zero. So who are you actually competing with? You're actually really not competing with anybody um, because so few people are willing to do, you know, what he's saying. It's like, if I'm going to advertise oil, I'm going to go into that meeting. And that's why I recommend reading books. And of course, uh, if you, by listening to this podcast, not only are you picking up, um, like ideas and t- tips and habits and, and unique perspectives about work, but it, they make you a more interesting person to talk to. So when they're in these, and a lot of, he talks about like the, the, the process in which a company, a large, mostly large corporations pick ad agencies. And it's almost, you know, it's just like a series of job interviews, essentially. Now imagine how, like the, the response that the person you're trying to solicit their business uh, from would get when they, when you can mention, oh yeah, I read on books on oil geology and production of petroleum products. I went to your refinery and went to your research laboratory. Like they're just going to be blown away. I love this. The note I left myself is only the autodidacts are free. Um, 87 American universities offer undergraduate courses in advertising and even give degrees in it. Okay, so it's 87 American universities at the time. Some of them give degrees in uh, in advertising, right? With a few conspicuous exceptions, the teachers lack the practical experience to be relevant. So he's saying they're selling you stuff that's worthless. All of them are handicapped by the poor quality of their textbooks, and very few do research on their own. How many times, we're, we're not even what, what, 20, 30 minutes into this podcast, how many times does the, the word research come up over and over again? You, it's very much a theme of David's life. Uh, very few do research on their own. Most of their graduates get jobs with small agencies. The big agencies preferring to recruit people who have furnished their minds by studying history, language, economics, and so forth. So he's very widely read. And when I do cover his... Um, What's interesting about his life, he talks about it a little bit in this book, but I'm sure more in Confessions of an Advertising Man, is that he didn't start in the um, advertising business until he was like 38. He was like an unemployed former chef, farmer, uh, researcher, and then he went into advertising. Um, So he had a a wide, um, like a broader set of life experiences that I think was useful when when he started doing advertising and then eventually when he set up his own agency. Um, he's telling us in, in this section to talk and write like a human. He says, be personal, direct, and natural. You are a human being writing to another human being. Neither of you is an institution. You should be businesslike and courteous, but never stiff and impersonal. I think this is also like as time goes by, more of my own media consumption has skewed heavily towards podcasts and YouTube and away from like scripted shows. Um, I just like another human, like it just feels more natural and authentic for one human to be talking to another and to like be like a person, not necessarily like a, like a company or like even, I I always talk about my favorite TV show probably of all time is Game of Thrones. I definitely enjoyed it. Now, most TV shows are not like that, but think about like the production. It took like one person to write, you know, 25 years of five, seven books, however many there's been. And then you have like literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people working on that. 
now you can come up with something as be- beautiful and epic as what I feel Game of Thrones was uh, last season, notwithstanding. Um, but there's also something extremely um, gratifying, like of of have of consuming something that's you know not necessarily scripted. I always talk about my favorite podcaster in the world is Dan Carlin, and I think he's the best podcaster on the planet. And it's so crazy to me that um, you know his shows. Uh, he's just talking to you. Um, and people are like, oh, is it scripted? He's like, no, I, I piece them together so I don't re- sit down and record all at once is what Dan says. But, you know, I I just, he basically talks to you as if you're sitting across from him. And um, obviously he's one of the best storytellers I've ever heard. Um, so he says, "Good. this is more good advice for life. If you take my advice, don't get a job in advertising unless it interests you more than anything in the world. And now he's going to give us advice on how important discipline is to your life. He says, discipline works. And now he's going to quote from history. He says, St. Augustine had this to say about pressure. To be under pressure is inescapable. Pressure takes place through all the world. War, siege, the worries of state. We all know men who grumble under these pressures and, and complain. They are cowards. They lack splendor. But there is another sort of man who is under the same pressure but does not complain. For it is the friction which polishes him. It is pressure which refines and makes him noble. And now back to David's takeaway on this. He says, I have to admit that I have sometimes found the pressure unbearable. My own fault for frittering away so much time on things which lead nowhere. It is a good idea to start the year by writing down exactly what you want to accomplish and end the year by measuring how much you have accomplished. So have a clear set of goals or ideas where you, where you, where you want it, uh, your year to be. And then have the discipline um, to go after that goal. And I like that idea of not complaining. That understanding that pressure is just part of life. It exists everywhere. And it, it's, it's intended to stress you a little bit to make you stronger. Um, a few pages later, he kind of extends this theme. and He, he believes you should write down your principles. So he says, uh, this is uh, written principles. And this is somebody else who, who, um, who he learned from, which is, I don't know if it's the founder of McKinsey, but he, well, let me go there. Marvin Bauer, who made McKinsey, the, the consulting firm, the huge consulting firm, who made McKinsey what it is today, believes that every company should have a, a written set of principles and purposes. So I drafted mine and sent them to Marvin for comments. On the first page, I had listed, I had listed seven purposes, starting with earn and increased profit every year. Marvin gave me holy hell. He said that any service business which gave higher priority to profits than to serving its clients, he's echoing Henry Ford here, serving its clients deserved to fail. So I relegated profit to seventh place on my list. Do you think it's childish to use a set of written principles to guide the management of an advertising agency? I can only tell you that mine has imp- have proved that I can only tell you that mine writing it down have proved invaluable in keeping a complicated enterprise on course. And I like this this writing technique David has. There's a lot of times where he's asking directly direct quotes to you, like he'll or direct questions rather. He'll he'll state his case or a case that he learned from somebody else. He's like, do you think this is stupid? Do you like would we just what he when he was comparing contrasting what general advertisers do con- compared to direct response? It's very um. It's very actually helpful because it takes you, when you're reading, you take a second. You're like, well, I don't know. Do I believe that? Like, let me think about what you're actually telling me. It's, it's, it's smart. I, I wish more writers use that. So this is why he feels he's qualified to give advice on sales. 
And this again, this is see more of his personality, more like he. It, this book, I I think I said earlier, I'm very happy this book came into my life. So whoever recommended it to me, thank you very much. Like I I'm smiling. I don't know if you can hear that, but I'm smiling. Just he's funny. So he says, here I go boasting again. There are better copywriters than I am and scores of better administrators, but I doubt if many people have matched my record as a new business collector. So he's saying, listen, I'm just, I'm really good at sales. And that's, and and that can give you an advantage in life above almost every other like aspect. If you can get really good at sales, you're, you're going to be successful in business. So this is his tips on sales meetings. Oh, so uh, what I should refer here. So this section we're in, it's how to how to get clients for your 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 business. And so that's what he's talking about. Like not only does his ad his ad sell, but he's really good at getting clients for his business. This is some tips which which he used in his own experience, which were helpful in closing clients. So he says they want to they meaning the the the, the corporation that wants to add uh, wants to hire you. He says they want to know what commission you will charge. I answer, if you're going to choose your agency on the basis of price, you are looking through the wrong end of the telescope. What you should worry about is not the price you pay for your agency's services, but the selling power of your advertising. So what is he telling you there? You're focused on price. You need to, to focus on value. This is really hard for humans to do. Really hard. But he's, he's completely right. Not only is that a better selling proposition for himself, but better for the company. Like, you know, don't worry about the price. Worry about the selling power of your advertising. Uh, rehearse before the meeting, but never speak from a prepared text. It locks you into position, which may become irrelevant during the meeting. So it's more conversational is how he would do this. Above all, listen. The more you get the prospective client to talk, the easier it will be to decide whether you really want his account. A former head of Magnavox treated me to a two-hour lecture on advertising about which he knew nothing. I gave him a cup of I gave him a cup of tea and showed him out. Tell your prospective client what your weak points are. This is a smart move too. Before he notices them, this will make you more credible when you boast about your strong points. Uh, so this is the importance of of headlines, and this is based on a lot of research he did. On the average, five times as many people read the headlines as read the body copy. It follows that unless your headline sells your product, you have wasted ninety percent of your money. The headlines which work best are those which promise the reader a benefit. That's what we talked about earlier. Like a whiter wash, more miles per gallon, freedom from pimples, fewer cavities. Rifle through a magazine and count the number of ads whose headlines promise a, who, whose headlines promise a benefit of any kind. If you are lucky enough to have some news to tell, don't bury it in your body copy, which 9 out of 10 people will not read. State it loud and clear in your headline. And don't scorn tried and true words like amazing, introducing, now, and suddenly. So he talks a little bit about in the book about, like, there's these words, like he just described, that, that they're so common, people doubt their effectiveness, not realizing that they're common because they're effective. And so a lot of advertisers are like, oh, I'm not going to use those words. I want to be more creative. Well, he's saying, in that case, you're choosing creativity over effectiveness, and therefore you're not servicing your customer. That's like a beautiful thought, the way he, he, the beautiful, like the beautiful logic he has there. And again, that comes from writing what he just said, write down your principles. His main goal was to serve, to sell more products for his customers. So he, he can, he has his written principles. He can refer back to him. He's like, is this behavior or this action I'm doing uh, in line with my stated goal? Let me read my stated goal. Is this going to sell more for my customers? No, then I'm not doing it. Um, this is advice on good copy. Do not address your readers as though they were gathered together in a stadium. When people read your copy, they are alone. 
Pretend you are writing each of them a letter on behalf of your client, one human to another. This isn't as easy as you may think. Aldous Huxley, who was once a copywriter, said, It's easier to write 10 passably effective sonnets than one effective advertisement. You cannot bore people into buying your product. You can only interest them in buying it. It pays to write short sentences and short paragraphs and to avoid difficult war words. So long copy, but short sentences, short paragraphs, so it's easier to read. Copy should be written in a language people use in everyday conversation. Don't write essays. Tell your readers what your product will do for him or her and tell it with specifics. This is another thing. Include the price. Your pri you should have pricing if you're selling something in your advertising. This is something that you don't see commonly, but he's, he's a real advocate for. Always try to include the price of your products. You may see a necklace in a jeweler's window, but you don't consider buying it because the price is not shown and you're too shy to go in and ask. It is the same way with advertisements. When the price of a product is left out, people have a way of turning the page. So people are scared to put the price. He's actually saying, no, it's a good, uh, um, it's a good idea. So this is examples of long copy. I'm gonna, he has got like, let's see, 10 examples here. I'm just, I'm going to omit every single word in the description except for how many words, right? Because he's going to make this case. He says, all my experience says that for a great many products, long copy sells more than short. Now he's going to give nine to 10 examples of advertisements he did. Uh, ready? 6,450 words. Five pages of solid text. 700 words. 600 words. 800 words. 4,700 words. 2,500 words. 3,200 words. And 800 words. And then he gives examples like, uh, you know, went from, from their company went from fifth in their industry to first. Um, you know, they went from 10,000 cars to 40,000 cars, et cetera, et cetera. And then this is his opinion on why long copy. I, I could give you countless other examples of long copy, which has made the cash registers ring. I believe without any research to support me that advertisements with long copy convey the impression that you have something important to say, whether people read the copy or not. That's interesting. Um, advice in life, keep it simple. It's interesting. I think humans crave simplicity, but we default to complexity. Um, copywriters specify that a commercial should be shot in... Oh, this is funny. Um, okay, so copywriters specify that a commercial should be shot in, ba in Bali when it could be equally, be equally well be shot in a studio for half the price. They insert expensive animation into live-action commercials. They insist that original music be composed for background purposes as if there were nothing suitable in the whole repertoire of existing music. Worst of all, they use expensive celebrities when an unknown actor would sell more of the product. Let me pause right there. He says he has research. And this is interesting because it flies in the face of how a lot of brands advertise their products today and how they did back then. That um, when you use a expensive celebrity in your ad, the consumers tend to remember the celebrity and not the brand, not the product. So he's saying that I have data that it's much more effective to hire an unknown person um, to sell your product than a celebrity. Which is funny because... Think about um I've seen studies on this where like um like one one like they hire uh, uh, the example I saw recently is they hired this famous model it's like fifteen thousand fifteen million a year for a jewelry company, and yet it's all brand advertising it's not direct response advertising so I'm like wait a minute I, I was like how how do they know the effectiveness of that fifteen million dollars, and the answer is they don't they're just guessing that's a hell of a guess to make. That, yeah, okay, I want my brand, my product to be associated with you, but I can't actually tra track 
what the, the difference in my sales was. So it's a huge benefit for the person getting the 15 million. And I say, I would, I would argue uh, rather dubious uh, for the company. But again, large companies do really stupid things constantly. I have no research to prove it, but I suspect there's a negative correlation. Oh, <laughs> so he's, uh, he's kind of echoing this. I have no research to prove it, but I suspect there's a negative correlation between the money spent on producing commercials and their power to sell products. My partner was asked by a client to remake a $15,000 commercial for $100,000 and sales went down. So it's interesting. I, I heard this podcast one time. I took notes on it where um, I think the brand was called Tuft and Needle. It's one of those, um, you know, these, these direct consumer. They're advertised on podcasts a lot, if I'm not mistaken, the, the, these uh, mattress companies, right? And the they wind up selling the company, I think, for like, I don't, uh, like let's say $500 million, something like that. I don't remember the exact number, right? Maybe $450 million. And the founder was talking about this. He's like, the ads where we spent a lot of money did were some of the worst performing ads. And he said they, they did ads where like were like Blair Witch, um, uh, Blair Witch Project style. That movie that was like real shaky, and I think won awards because it was maybe been recorded like a camcorder back in the day. But he was just stuff rough and dirty. He talked about um, tracking the ads on, if I remember correctly, billboards and just like a black billboard with white text like very simple, like one sentence uh, performed way better. And I forgot what the sentence was or whatever the case was. Then, um, then uh, like ones that had like were overproduced. They had like images and, you know, cause billboards have to be like a poster. It's interesting enough. David hates billboards. He, he thought he thinks the roads would be much safer and he makes predictions at the end of the book that eventually billboards would be illegal. And I guess they're illegal in some countries cause he, he references that um, in his writing as well. Um, but anyways, enough about the billboards, but he, the, what the person, I think his name's JT Marino, uh, the founder of Tufton, one of the founders of Tufton, you know, the point he was making was commercials doing them rough and dirty and spending less money. They actually produce, uh, perform better. Okay. So, um, oh, this is, and I love, um, how Ogilvy was saying earlier that he's, uh, his dogmatism of brevity. He's going to tell us exactly what the most important sentence of the book is. He says, advertising which promises no benefit to the consumer does not sell, yet the majority of campaigns contain no promise whatsoever. This is the most important sentence in the book. Read it again. I'll do as he asks. Advertising which promises no benefit to the consumer does not sell, yet the majority of campaigns contains no promise whatsoever. Um, and he continues a few paragraphs later. He says, try to find a promise which is not only persuasive, but also unique. Uh, this is why David loves research. Few copywriters share my appetite for research. Many others thought that it inhibited creativity. My experience has been the opposite. Research has often led me to good ideas such as the eye patch in the Hathaway campaign. So there's this company that sells shirts and he had this weird idea that just putting a, a fake eye patch on the, um, on the model that's modeling the shirts would actually increase sales because it would increase people would instead of glancing over the ad, they'd be like, what, what is going on here? And then they'd actually look at it. So he actually got more people to read the ad and then that resulted in more sales. So he says, I've seen ideas so wild that nobody in his senses would dare to use them until research found that they worked. And there's another example. When I had the idea of writing headlines for French tourism in French, my partners told me I was nuts until research revealed that French headlines were more effective than English headlines. Isn't that bizarre? 
Researchers also saved me from making some horrendous mistakes. So what he means by French headline, the first sentence would be in French. Then you'd have English translation under it. The next sentence is in French. France. The next sentence is in French, and you'd have English under it, and so on and so forth. So that's what he's talking about. Uh, researchers also save me from making some horrendous mistakes. Researchers often misused by agencies and their clients. They have, oh, this is important. They have a way of using it to prove they are right. They use research as a drunk uses a lamppost, not for illumination, but for support. On the whole, however, research can be of incalculable help. I love this idea. Don't waste time on problem babies. Most marketers spend too much time worrying about how to revive products which are in trouble and too little time worrying about how to make successful products even more successful. It is the mark of a brave man to admit defeat, cut his loss, and move on. Concentrate your time, your brains, and your advertising money on your successes. Back your winners and abandon your losers. And he says, don't dawdle. Most big corporations behave if this, this is so good. Most big corporations behave as if profit were not a function of time. When Jerry Lambert scored his breakthrough with Listerine, he sped up the whole process of marketing by dividing time into months. He reviewed progress every 30 days with the result that he made a fortune in record time. So again, think of profit as a function of time. I think that's really good advice. David has some thoughts on pricing. So he says, pricing is guesswork. It is usually assumed that marketers use scientific methods to determine the price of their products. Nothing could be further from the truth. In almost every case, the process, of the, the process of decision is one of guesswork. The higher you price your product, the more desirable it becomes in the eyes of the consumer. Um, so they talk about the study that happened at the University of Iowa. Tried to relate the prices of 679 brands of food products to their quality. He found that the correlation between quality and price was almost zero. Then he has this idea of uh, where you account for your advertising costs. And he says it's a production cost, not a selling cost, even though advertising is, is thought of as, um, as written uh, salesmanship in print is the word, is the quote he uses. I have come to regard advertising as part of the product to be treated as a production cost, not a selling cost. It follows that it should not be cut back when times are hard any more than you would stint any other essential ingredient for your product. Okay, so now we actually got, we've gotten to the, my favorite. I love the, all parts of this book, but I really love the ending because uh, this is where we, he, he profiles people like specifically like people that were practice his craft before he did and what he learned from them, which I think is the entire point of founders. Right. Um, so this is six giants who invented modern advertising. Uh, this is introduction paragraph. He says all six had other jobs before they went into advertising. At least five were gluttons for work and uncompromising perfectionists. Four made their reputations as copywriters, and only three had university degrees. So I'm just going to tell you the person's name, and then I'm gonna, he gives like short biographies for them all. But I'm just going to point pull out like the quotes that I wanted to remember. Most I think Albert. So Albert Lasker's first. He might be the one I highlighted the most on too. All right, says, Albert Lasker made more money than anyone in the history of the advertising business. One of, his, one of Albert Lasker's copywriters came up with what he feels is the best description of advertising. He says, he says, advertising was salesmanship in print, a definition that has never been improved. Lasker held that if an agency could write copy which sold the product, nothing, nothing else was needed. Isn't that like, it's, a, it's beautiful when you can have a business where it's that simple. 
doesn't mean it's easy, but it's very simple. Like if we can write copy and sell more products, then that that's it. Nothing else matters. We will be successful. Now, what happens is uh, that means he's also kept Albert Lasker. The reason he made um, this is an interesting point, right? A lot of advertising agencies have a lot of revenue. But Albert Lasker had he made more money because he had he controlled his costs. Something something talked about ad nauseum on founders, right? What he meant is like he focused on copywriting. He didn't have like art directors and and executives and all the other like fluff. Um, well, I just ran over my point here. So he said by dispensing with marketers, art directors, and researchers, Lasker saved so much money that he was able he was able to make a profit of seven percent. Probably the world's record for advertising agencies. If an agency makes more than one percent today, it is an ex- it is exceptional. His uh, advertising agency was called Lord and Thomas. He says he ran Lord and Thomas as a dictatorship. As you all know, he told his staff, "I am the owner of this business, and therefore I decide the policies." He owned ninety five percent of the shares. So there's this, uh, this idea of control that that uh, comes up all the time. After he retired, he said he had never attended a director's meeting and did not think that, have, that, that one had ever been held. He, uh, he loathed talking on the telephone and abominated committee, committees. He never belonged to an advertising club and avoided his competitors. That's actually might be interesting where you avoid like industry news. So you can so you're not that like we have the, 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 like, the tendency to copy those around us. So if you avoid that. You come up with like your own unique um, like ideas. It might be more differentiation for your product. He was not shy about conspicu- conspicuous consumption. His weekend estate outside Chicago had a staff of 50. He once defined an administrator as somebody without brains. He once said, I didn't want to make a great fortune. I wanted to show what I could do with my brains. He could be overbearing, intolerant, and arrogant. He's a misfit. He could be bad-tempered, demanding, and inconsiderate. And he had three prolonged nervous breakdowns. And then check this out. This is how, like, he's got a very... I, I looked for a biography on him. I couldn't find one. Or else I'd cover him because this guy's such a weirdo in, 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 in a, you know, an affectionate way. Um, this is how he just he dominates an industry. And then one day he's like, all right, I'm out. One afternoon, late in 1942, he suddenly said to her, his wife... Mary, I've decided to get out of the advertising business. Two days later, he gave Lord and Thomas to three of his bright young men for a token payment of $100,000. He lived for another 10 years. That's really interesting. All right, so now this guy's name is Stanley Rezer. Um, Rezer, so now he's comparing trashing. Rezer was never overbearing like Lasker. He managed by consensus. So he's, this guy had did success in almost the opposite way, right? He managed by consensus, distrusting what he called individual opinion, and thought that brilliance was dangerous. His agency was structured in the loosest possible way. He detested hierarchies. There were no department heads and no job descriptions. He used to say that his agency was a university of advertising. So he um he was very um he spent a lot of time in in training his employees. He was a fervent believer in research. A man of rigid principles, he threw away an opportunity to get the huge camel cigarette account because he would not show speculative advertisements. Reznor made one mistake. He stayed too long. By the time he was in his 80s, his ideas for advertising campaigns had become anachronistic. I don't know how to pronounce that word. And partners who, have, who would have made good successors retired before he did. All right, so this guy is probably the most important um, person 
in, uh, on a personal level to David. His name is Raymond Rubicam. Uh, he was my conscience for 40 years, teaching me that advertising has a responsibility to behave. Raymond Rubicam assembled the best team of copywriters and art directors in the history of advertising. Under Rubicam's inspiration, they created advertisements which were read by more people than any other agency. In one of his last letters before he died, Rubicam wrote to David, We knew you before you started your agency. How come we missed you? By the time he, we had become great friends, friends is not the right word. He was my patron, my inspiration, my counselor, my critic, and my conscience. I was his hero-worshipping disciple. Um, Rubicon was, was the most outspoken man I've ever known. He blurted out what it was ever on his mind without considering what effect it might have. Um, the youngest of eight children in a poor family, he left school when he was 15 and spent the next nine years bumming around the country as a shipping clerk, a bellhop, a chaperone of cattle, a movie projectionist, a door-to-door salesman, an automobile salesman, and a newspaper reporter. When he was 24, he applied for a job as a copywriter at the now-defunct Wallace Armstrong Agency in Philadelphia. Now, check this out. The reason I include this, this is how he gets a job. He's very um, resourceful and, ten- and is tenacious the word I'm looking for? Persistent, maybe is the better word. And this is a direct quote from, um, from Raymond. I sat in the lobby, meaning of the agency, on a bench so hard that I can still feel it, he later recalled. At the end of the ninth day, I exploded. So he's sitting in the lobby nine days straight. I wrote the boss a letter calculated to produce an immediate interview or a couple of black eyes. So he knows the value of being uh, polarizing. The boss stormed into the lobby, waving the letter and said, those ads you wrote didn't amount to much, but this letter has some stuff in it. So he winds up getting the job. Uh, More on Raymond. In In old age, he told me, advertising has a responsibility to behave properly. I prove that you can sell products without bamboozling the American public. While he had no monopoly on this virtue, he had more right than anyone to boast about it. So this is actually interesting because I didn't know that. Um, I I learned this by reading Anthony Bourdain's book, I don't know, maybe a decade ago called Kitchen Confidential. And he talks about like at the time when he got, uh, um, and I guess Danny Meyer talked about that a little bit in his book Setting the Table, how when they got involved in the restaurant industry, it was it was like an island of, for misfits. Like uh, your your family would look down on you for working in the industry. And now it's like the opposite, right? They have TV shows about chefs and they become individual personalities and all that sort of stuff. So David talks about this in the book. What they were talking about, what Raymond taught him is that people looked at advertisers like scum. They thought they were like scam artists and stuff. And so that's why Raymond was like, listen, yeah, advertising, you're going to have a small percentage that, that are just trying to trick people into buying useless products. But for us, it's our our obligation to make sure that it behaves properly, that we're advertising and selling effective products and that we're not like tricking or lying to customers. Um, so that, that's interesting because I don't, maybe, maybe I don't know enough about the, the, like the ad agency business now, but I'm, I mean, they have TV shows like Mad Men about it. Like it seems to be somewhat prestigious in, in that sense, at least from like a cultural perspective. I could be wrong though. Um, so he says, he taught me to resign accounts when they were spoiling the morale of the staff. He resigned the huge American tobacco account because he disliked being bullied by the, by the notorious George Washington Hill, who I guess was the head of that. His letter is before me. So this is what Raymond, he's like, Raymond sends to George Washington Hill about we're going to part ways. This is hilarious. And his, his, um, his uh, agency is called Young and Rubicon. So it says, Young, this is, this is now uh, Raymond writing to Hill. 
Young and Rubicom and American Tobacco were both successful companies for some time before our association began. I trust both will continue to be successful companies after our association ceases, which it is doing as of now. So I love that. He has some kind of principles and he's willing to turn down money. He's like, listen, you're a bully. You're ruining my, uh, the morale of my staff and be gone. Uh, he says, I knew, this is David, I knew Rubicam for 40 years, longer than any other giants, and I loved him more. Wow, that's, that's beautiful. He did leave behind an aphorism. I love this too. Resist the usual. In advertising, the beginning of greatness is to be different, and the beginning of failure is to be the same. There's a hell of a quote in here, man. Uh, Leo Burnett is the next guy. Uh, it wasn't, now, this kind of pierces the myth that, that um, that, you know, like entrepreneurship or success only comes early in life where the, not only is that like, uh, like empirically not true, the data s states like the, at least from like, I think the data I've seen is like, uh, and this is not the best metric for success in entrepreneurship, keep in mind, but like, I want to say like IPOs usually started by people when they're like an average age of like 42 years old or something. This guy, Leo, he says it wasn't until, Le until he was 60 that Leo hit his stride. It was as if he had suddenly turned on his afterburners. By the time he died 20 years later, his agency had become the biggest in the world outside of New York. That's bananas. Um, so he has, uh, Leo has his set of principles and he wrote them down. Maybe that's where David got that idea from. His attitude to the creative process can be summed up in three things he said. Number one, there is an inherent drama in every product. Our number one job is to dig for it and capitalize on it. Number two, when you reach for the stars, you may not quite get one, uh, get one, but you won't come up with a handful of mud either. And number three, steep yourself in your subject. Work like hell and love and honor and obey your hunches. I've never heard that before. Love and honor and obey your hunches. Um, at the end of his life, he wrote, looking back over our greatest achievements, I recall that, that few of them were generated in an atmosphere of sweetness, light, and enthusiasm but rather one of dynamic tension complicated by offstage muttering. And this is my own personal view that we need uh, stressors, not chronic stressors, but definitely acute stressors in our life uh, for, for the best, like for the best outcomes. Um, instead of assigning a project to one creative, oh, this is another good idea too. Check this out. Instead of one, uh, assigning a project to one creative group, he had a habit of putting several groups in competition. It was enough, he once said, to send strong men staggering to buy a goat farm. So you get more out of people. This is kind of known in human nature. You get more out of people when they're in direct competition. Um, I do this this from time to time. I use uh, the Apple Watch to track. Like I don't use it for anything else but to track fitness. And I don't even know if it's the best for that, but it's it's the one with the biggest network of people I know. So uh, friends will challenge you to, like, let's have a you know week-long um, or, you know, three day long or week long competition. Let's see who can burn the most calories or who works out for the longest. And it, I don't know if I'll do that anymore. I've done it a few times where, uh, I've almost destroyed myself. Uh, so this actually, this is not proving the point that I was trying to make, but, uh, to the point where I was just like, all right, I, I can't do it anymore. This is, this is insane. Uh, but you definitely, um, at least in my, my case, like I definitely burned way more calories than I normally would. Um, because, you know, I had that direct competition and I could see what the other person was doing. Um, Leo deplored the tendency of mega agencies to put their own aggrandizement ahead of service to their clients. There's that word service again. Not long before he died, he told his staff. Oh, I love this. Somewhere along, somewhere along the line, after I'm off the, finally off the premises, 
you may want to take my name off the premises too. But let me tell you, uh, let me tell you when I might demand that you take my name off the door. That will be the day when you spend more time trying to make money and less time making advertising. When your main interest becomes a matter of size just to be big rather than good, hard, wonderful work. This is what I love. I always talk about I favor small companies in general that I feel I get the best products and services for them because they actually give a damn. They actually have some kind of skin in the game. Uh, and a lot of a lot of uh, literature and, and, and um, media and entrepreneurship is, is kind of we, we fetishize the big. Um, and I love that idea. Like you, you can get big as long as service is number one, like Henry Ford seemed to have done. But when this, what Leo says, when your main interest becomes a matter of size just to be big rather than good, hard, wonderful work. I love that. He's like, I'll make you take your name off it. And then this is what David said. I wish I had written that. Oh, that's so good. All right, Claude Hopkins is the next person. Uh, by exercising the pseudo-literary pretensions endemic in British copywriters, remember, David definitely favored uh, practice and research over theory, and concentrating my thoughts on the obligation of advertising to sell, Claude Hopkins' book, Scientific Advertising, changed the course of my life. So this will be the second or third time I've mentioned in the podcast that books are the original links. David believed that too because at the very end of the book, he's like, here's all these books you need to read that, I, that influence what I just wrote. I got the ideas from them. Read them. Really interesting. I uh, wish all books did that. And that's why I also, um, I buy, so I prefer to read and do the podcast and highlight and take notes in the paperback or hardcover versions of these books, but I almost always buy the Kindle version too because one, I can search the book and add notes, but it also tells me in the Kindle version what other books are mentioned within that book. So I find a bunch of other books like like what what's this idea that Henry Ford said? He's like the idea that we're ever going to um, automate our way to like where humans have nothing to do. He's like, that's not real. Like every new opportunity creates two new opportunities. Every new book creates two new books. Um, when he was 41, he was hired by Albert Lasker. So this guy didn't run his own firm, right? He was hired by the guy we talked about first, the very first one, Albert Lasker, the guy that made the most money, to write copy for Lord and Thomas. Lasker paid him 185000 a year, equivalent to $2 million in today's money. Wow. What does that tell you about his skill? And again, when, when uh, people are always like, what, like I, don't, I want to start a business. I don't know um, like what I should do. There's two things I normally say. I use that example that Richard Branson says, a business is just an, uh, something that makes somebody's life better. So if you look at it to that point, you find tons of opportunity. And the second thing is like try to, businesses will always pay you to bring them more business. So think about why is this guy getting, as an employee, making $2 million a year? Because he's selling more business. <laughs> so he's going to get paid for that. He stayed at Lord and Thomas for 18 years. Hopkins uh, was a prodigiously hard worker. Sunday was his favorite day because he could work without interruption. He held that nobody with a college education should be allowed to write copy for the mass market. David says, I know what he meant. He was an, unco he was an uncompromising practitioner of the experimental method, forever testing new ideas in search of better results. And then um, he wrote, uh, he wrote like, uh, like takeaways, I guess you'd call it, from his life in advertising. I'm just going to read two of them to you. Ad writers forget that they are salesmen and try to be performers. Instead of sales, they seek applause. Um, it is not uncommon for a change in headline to multiply returns from five to ten times over. That's interesting. Um, this is uh, another one called Bill, Bill Burnatch. 
Um, and this is actually the last guy uh, we'll cover. Um, so he says, he held, as I do, that the quality of the idea and the excellence of its execution was the alpha and omega of successful advertising. So quality of the idea, excellence of execution. He worshipped at the altar of originality and was never tired of denouncing research as the enemy of creativity. Remember, a lot of these people are successful even though they have conflicting views. That's why it's so important to collect as many ideas as you can because entrepreneurship, like life, is a complex adaptive system. It does not act uh, in a predictable way. Um, so there could be a, a good idea that you pick up that it applied in the wrong situation yields a bad result. And that same idea in a different situation can yield a better result. That's very confusing. That's why so many few, so few people uh, are entrepreneurs. It's really hard. Uh, this may have irritated some of his clients, but it made him the hero of the creative fraternity. He spoke in a quiet voice and looked modest, but he wasn't. Uh, when some of his stodger, here's an example of his, his non-modesty. When some of his stodger competitors started raiding his agency in search of swingers, uh, I don't know, I assume good talent and not the other word, meaning of the word swinger, uh, Bill told me, they don't realize that these people will be helpless without my guiding hand. Woo. He was a philosopher. He lived without ostentation and organized his time with a self-discipline that is rare among heads of agencies. Um, shortly before uh, Bill, shortly before he died, Bill was asked, oh, this is, th this is where I'm going to close this podcast. And this is so important because it's, it's a foundation of why we're going to history to learn, right? Shortly before he died, Bill was asked what changes he expected in advertising in the 80s, remember the 1980s. He replied, human nature hasn't changed for a billion years. It won't even vary in the next billion years. Only the superficial things have changed. It is fashionable to talk about cha a changing man. A communicator must be concerned with a unchanging man. What compulsions drive him? What instincts dominate his every action? This is very similar to what Jeff Bezos says, like uh, find the things that don't, um, that are never going to change and then build your business around that for so for amazon's case he's like you know or in 10 years from now are people going to be like i wish amazon had less selection no are they going to say i wish you delivered uh my my product slower no uh, i wish you had worse customer service no so he's like that's the things that we orient around because they're going to be true today and they be true in the future so he says what uh, a communicator must be concerned with unchanging man what compulsions drive him what instincts dominate his every action even though his language too often camouflages what really motivates him another trend we keep talking about actions indicate our, I always say, in like our family, actions express priorities, okay? So remember, language often camouflages what really motivates him. So watch actions. Uh, for if you know these things about a man, you can, you can touch him at the core of his being. Again, that's another way to say you know his incentives. This guy's really, there's a lot of knowledge in this one paragraph. One thing is unchangingly sure. The creative man with an insight into human nature with the artistry to touch and move people, will succeed. Without them, he will fail. A gentleman with brains. I think now, after hearing me talk about this for maybe an hour, you realize how much I love this book. Um, I know you can't see me, but I've had smiles on my face a lot of the time reading this to you and talking about this. I think it's great. Uh, the, the book is beautiful. Like, uh, you know, obviously a podcast, you're not going to be able to see the ads. I'd buy it just for that, but this guy is just so smart. He's just so interesting. So I cannot wait to read his biography. That'll that'll undoubtedly be another Founders episode in the future. But if you want to buy this, po uh, if you want to buy this podcast, if you want to buy this book um, and support me, uh, the author, um, and yourself at the same time, there's always a link in the show notes. 
Um, and that link is an Amazon affiliate link, which means if you if you click on that link and buy through that link, Amazon will send a small percentage of sale, no additional cost to you. You can also go, uh, another way to do that is amazon.com force us shop, force us founders podcast. Um, other than that, I think I've spoken enough. I will talk to you next week.